Hey everybody, this is episode number 17 of the Tax Security Podcast. Uh, with the Tax Security Podcast, we try to discuss security topics including Cisco device configuration as well as best practices, but we try to give you a unique perspective on the discussion points coming from the Cisco Technical Assistance Center. Uh, with me in the studio today is David White Jr., Magnus Mortensen, and Blaine Dreyer, and I'm your host, Jay Johnston. So with this episode, we're going we're gonna to talk about the Cisco support community. Uh, this is a website that Cisco has been running for a little while, a little over a year now, and the goal is to facilitate uh, technical discussions between uh, Cisco's customers, Cisco's partners, and Cisco employees. So it's really a place where we uh, envision everybody sort of getting together and talking about Cisco technical issues, and it's a great place for customers to go to ask technical questions and discuss um, just about anything Cisco-related with Cisco employees. The Cisco support community is really broken down into um, a different a different hierarchy of communities. So if you go to the main webpage, and that's uh, supportforums.cisco.com, you'll see a listing of communities uh, sort of broken down by technology. So, for example, uh, if you were interested in firewalling technologies, you could click on the firewalling community, and, and there you'll see um, a list of documents, discussions. You'll see some other links for things like videos and blogs. And uh, I'll talk about documents first. This is one of the things that really excited me as attack engineers that I could create a document about something technical, right? Um, for example, phone proxy sample configuration, right? I could create that document. I could write it myself. I could have my peers review it. And then very easily and quickly, I could get that document out onto the web so our customers could see it and, um, you know, comment on it. They can even, you know, uh, provide suggestions and edit the document. And the idea is that that technical information can get right from the TAC and be exposed very quickly externally to Cisco. So we found that very useful. Yeah, I, I have to say, I remember when I first started here, our document release procedure was very, very much long in the tooth. And, you know, TAC could write docs, but it took a long time before that would finally see the light of, uh, the light of day. But uh, besides documents, a very big portion of the community is forums, uh, also very much uh, sectioned off by technical topic, firewalling, VPN, etc. And in those forums, you can ask, you know, questions to anybody, to TAC, to other customers who, you know, may be doing certain firewall things that they deem themselves experts in. And, you know, I've seen a lot of cases be avoided by people responding to those forums. I mean, it essentially becomes a community where you can ask whatever you want about anything Cisco related. Yeah. And you'll get responses from, you know, other Cisco customers, Cisco partners and Cisco employees as well. And, you know, the Cisco TAC, we watch those discussions and uh, we, you know, we make sure we try to make sure that they get answered and we jump in and answer questions ourselves. So it's a neat sort of pipeline directly to the TAC, um, you know, to discuss those different issues. Yeah, and another thing that uh, that I actually use the Cisco support community for is posting our video podcast. So we, I do a podcast with a, a colleague on the IPS team called the TAC IPS Media Series, and we post the video and the show notes directly to the Cisco support community. So uh, users can subscribe to the main page that lists all of the different episodes, and then watch the video directly from the CSC. So what's your who are, who is your target audience with that? Um, we really have different episodes that target different levels of expertise. The majority of our episodes will target someone with some IPS knowledge, but you don't necessarily have to be an expert. We'll, we'll explain things at a high level and then kind of dive into each one. And another thing that's, I think, important to mention is that the Cisco support community is free. Um, you know, we don't charge any money for it. Uh, customers, as long as you have a CCO login, you know, you log in and authenticate with that 
uh, C, you know, your CCO user ID and password, and that's how you appear on the community, and that's how you, you know, that's what your username shows up as. And you can change, if you want to, you can change what your name looks like. Uh, a lot of the tech engineers um, and, and different Cisco employees put their real name there, but if you're, if you don't want to do that, if you're not comfortable doing that, or for whatever reason you don't want to put your CCO ID or your real name, you can use a, you know, a, a pseudonym. That, that's fine too. And other functions on there, you can even go so far as to become friends and follow other people. So really, it's kind of like a nerdy version of Facebook for Cisco fanboys. <laughs> All right. That's a good way to put it. Yeah, one other thing is when you uh, post questions to it, if you don't get an answer and you have a support contact with Cisco, now you can just click a button and have it automatically open a tag case as well. So, you know, you can start your question in the community, and if it doesn't go answered, you can automatically escalate it per se to the tag. Yeah, and there's two cool things about that. One is that when the case gets submitted the, into the Cisco ticketing system, as tech engineers, we can see that it's all the information that was posted in that discussion um, when we view the case notes internally. And the other cool thing is, once the tech engineer and the customer work to resolve the problem, the tech engineer will enter in specific notes about what the resolution of that was. And so when the case gets closed, the discussion that on the community that spawned the case will get updated with those um, case closure notes. So the community can then see the resolution to the problem, right, and uh, and hopefully learn from that. And every, that way everybody that's watching that discussion can learn the resolution from the TAC case, which is pretty neat in my opinion. Yeah, so there's a lot of value that the community provides for customers. Um, one thing to keep in mind if you haven't used community yet and you're going there to answer questions, to you know, it's just like if you were going to open a tag case. Try to provide as much information as you think is possible in your first post so that people really fully understand the problem. And oftentimes people forget to, uh, you know, include something like an ASCII diagram of, you know, the traffic flow, you know, through the device or through their network. Uh, it doesn't have to be elaborate just to give people perspective of what the actual problem is. Um, and also, once the question is answered, we really, really, really want to encourage you guys to mark the question is answered. So there's a button there that said, yes, my question is now answered or solved. And that allows us as Cisco employees to kind of track what questions have been answered and which ones haven't. So we know where to go to focus to try to resolve the questions that haven't been answered. Yeah, and one of the biggest benefits of the CSC is, is, or the support community is the ability to go back and look at historically questions that have already been answered. And like Dave was saying, if you if you ask a question and it is answered, you can not only mark the thread as answered, but you can mark the individual message that truly answered your question as answered. And that will help people in the future when they're you know looking through the entire thread to find that one message that that contains the answer to your question. And last but not least about each individual answer as well as different content that's on the support community, you can attach a rating of one to five stars. And that's very important because it helps gauge the quality of those answers, not just that they answered you, but the quality of the responses and content that you find. So, you know, under each piece of information, there is a little rating section. Feel free to click it and set it to whatever you want. You can rate more than one response on a thread. You can rate all of them. You can rate none. But please rate whenever you can. And one final thing about uh, the communities, um, we've talked about you can go there to ask questions, you know, post the questions and get answers to your questions. You can go there to look at documents that have been created by Cisco employees and even non-Cisco employees. You can go there to watch VODs or videos. Um, and the fourth thing that the community provides is the ability to have blog posts. So there's a lot of Cisco employees that go out there and post blogs about different technical information. 
So that might be of, uh, of use to you to follow someone's blog or to look at a different blog post out there. But those are the four main areas uh, or features that the communities provide. So one thing we definitely want to encourage you to do, if you have a question, go ahead and try it out on the support forums. There's a wealth of knowledge as well as a wealth of individuals, including additional customers who are more than willing to help you out. You'd be amazed how quick you can actually get a response on that. Yeah, and I'd like to add that for all of our listeners, I think we have a very large um, audience of very technical people. I'd encourage you guys to go out there and join the support forums and help and see where you can answer questions and help out your fellow peers. So there's a lot of satisfaction you can get from helping someone else out in a critical time of need and by solving their problems. So I'd encourage you all, you know, all our listeners to to show up and uh, answer some questions. Yep, and again, that webpage is, the, the URL is supportforums.cisco.com. You can just search Google for Cisco Support Forums, and that'll take you right there. So with this episode today, we're going to take some questions that we found on the support forums, and we're going to discuss um, our answers to those questions. The basic idea is to give you an idea of you know, what, uh, what kinds of questions we see and um, you know, have an interesting technical discussion around them, right? Okay, so to kick things off, um, Magnus, here is a question for you. This question was posted by a Cisco partner, and it's about ASA ACL limits. And uh, this partner says, I want to understand the ACL limits on the ASA 5520 platform. And he mentions that he saw that there are ACL limits on the firewall service module platform, but he doesn't find he hasn't found anything for the ASA. So he's wondering if there's a documented limitation on on, on Cisco.com or, C, or CCO. So obviously, when we're talking about ACL limits, there's going to be a big difference between the ASA and the FWSM platforms. On the FWSM, we do everything in hardware, so we're restricted to very specific limits uh, for you know ACL size and storage. But on the ASA platform, where everything's done in software, we're primarily restricted by the amount of memory that's available on the platform, since everything's run in memory. Now, that, of course, is going to vary from platform to platform, and that will also vary depending on whether or not you're running with the memory upgrade. In tests that were done with the, without the memory upgrade, so the 5520 by default should have 512 megs, we were able to get about 300,000 access list entries before we started to see um, you know, some performance implications along the lines of lack of memory or you know, processing power. But obviously, once you upgrade to the you know, memory upgrade kit to bring that to 2 gigs, you should expect to see a significant increase in access list uh, size and storage so that you can obviously go much higher than 300,000. But as you transition between the different platforms, those numbers do change. And again, it's all based on memory. So this was tested in our lab using um, some avalanche reflector pairs, which allowed us to test some HTTP traffic just to make sure that we weren't seeing any uh, performance implications at too high of an access list count. Now, Obviously, once you start to configure a lot of ACLs, when you get to that point and you start seeing errors about not being able to add the access list, you know you've hit your limit. And again, that limit is going to vary based upon free memory. So there's really no hard set limit. If you want to reduce the memory footprint of your access list, there's a couple different things that you can do. First one would be to reduce the size of your access list. Summarize wherever possible. Simplify your access list count. It's the same kind of things you would do should you be using an FWSM and have the same issue where you run out of space. The other option is to use object group search. And this is a function that you can turn on on your firewall and it will reduce the memory footprint of very large access lists. And it changes the way that the access list is handled by the firewall. Uh, that can be enabled by doing the command object-group-search. 
access-control. And that really only helps if you have very large access lists. If you have a much smaller access list, that command may not really improve your performance any. It actually may cause some performance degradation. And Magnus, you mentioned the 5520, that uh, prior to the memory upgrade, around 300,000 ACLs is probably the max that you should you should configure on the box. Um, there's a lot of customers running 5510s, and so for the 5510s, the you know that soft limit that we would recommend is around the 80,000 mark. All right. Well, uh, Blaine, I, I actually just uh, trolled the forum here a little bit, and I came across a uh, question that seemed to be very cent- centered around IPSs. Uh, specifically, a customer here asks, I have observed zero window probe events, and its default action says modify packet. Uh, what will be the exact action taken by the IPS? Because uh, he needs to thoroughly understand it. Please guide me. So, Blaine, what is that all about? Okay, so the zero window probe events that uh, the customer is talking about there are actually a signature 1317. And the 1317 signature is part of our normalizer engine. And the normalizer engine uh, does exactly that. It normalizes uh, IP connections and uh, TCP flows. So it does that by watching uh, for particular flags or bits that are set in, uh, in, in fragments, and it also watches for um, TCP segments being out of order or particular flags being set in TCP packets. And so it normalizes the flow or normalizes the packets by resetting those fragments or bits or putting things back in order. And the reason that it actually does that is not so that, I mean, it does have a, a secondary reason in that, you know, we can't inspect IP flows and strings within those flows uh, in order unless the packets are in order. But the true reason why we want to reorder this is so that we can understand how the host is going to see traffic. So if a particular bit is set in a packet and we don't know how that host is going to respond to that bit, we just remove the bit. And then now we know how uh, the host is going to respond by the packet not having the bit set at all. So the the particular uh, signature that the customer is asking about, the zero window probe, uh, has to do with uh, receiving host window becoming full and it's sending back to the, the sending host a, a zero window packet. And when the window is full, we need a way for the receiving host to tell the sending host that the window has opened up again or there, there is some free space in the window. So the receiving host would normally send back an ACK packet to the sending host and say, hey, you know, my window's opened up a bit. You can go ahead and send me more data. But let's say that ACK packet gets lost. Now the connection just sits in a stale state. So in order to prevent that, the sending host will go ahead and send a zero window probe just asking, hey, you know, do you have any space in your window or or is it still all taken up? And that's the packet that we're detecting. Well, in the RFC, the RFC says that you can actually send data along with the zero window probe so that if the zero window probe arrives at the receiving host and the window is slightly open, it can actually process that traffic. Well, we don't exactly know how the receiving host is going to react to there being data in that packet, and the RFC isn't 100% clear as to whether there should or should not be data in the packet. It just gives you the option. So what the sensor will actually do is remove the data altogether. So now we know exactly how the receiving host is going to respond to that. So along with 1317, the zero window probe detection uh, signature, there are quite a few other signatures that are involved in the normalizer engine. And uh, you'll find those in the 1200 range, in the 1300 range, and just a couple in the 3050 and the 3250 range. 
The ones that we see the most uh, far and above are going to be the 1330 signatures. And those do with TCP state tracking and TCP segment tracking, um, which is really just state tracking of the segments, you know, being in order. And so what customers will actually do is see those fire quite a bit. And they actually do affect traffic because they'll drop segments that are out of order that exceed a buffer. And they'll just disable the signature altogether. Well, disabling the signature has some adverse effects on other parts of the, the IPS. If we disable a signature that reorders packets, we can no longer order those packets to inspect for a string that, let's say, comes in across multiple packets. So, I mean, if you think about it literally, you know, if I, if I have the string root in two different packets and the RO comes in one and the OT comes in another, and those are out of order, I've, I've no longer matched that string. So that's a simple uh, example of how modifying these signatures can actually cause some effects that you know, aren't necessarily uh, obvious. But we do uh, try to keep customers from modifying those signatures without fully understanding what the modification is going to cause. Now, we do have all of this information in the CLI command uh, guide. Uh, for the IPS, and that's pretty much all versions of the command guide. So you can search uh, the signatures section and look up information on all of these signatures and what will happen if you modify them in different ways. So Jay, I was looking through the discussions in the firewalling forums the other day, and I saw this one question by a particular user, and uh, they were having a problem where they were seeing a lot of UDP packets that were being sent through their firewall that were destined to random destination ports. And... Um, they had so many of these UDP packets that so many connections were being created on the firewall that it was actually reaching the 10,000 connection limit. And uh, they actually had a 5505. So what could we do on the 5505 that would prevent that type of attack? Okay, so we've seen this question before. I've actually taken a couple attack cases on it. And we see it most often on the ASA 5505 just because the ASA 5505 has the lowest um, license connection, total connection limit on the platform. So an ASA 5505 with the base license will support up to 10,000 connections. Uh, with a Security Plus license, it'll handle up to 25,000. Um, and the issue, most most common issue that we see when customers end up hitting a problem in the open up tag case is that either they have an, a host on the inside of the 5505 that is infected with some worm or virus and it's scanning the internet trying to send traffic to infect other computers and in that case it that inside that one inside host can build a whole lot of connections and use up all the available uh, license connection slots on the 5505. In this case, this firewall administrator is having a problem with new inbound connections from some sort of malicious outside user creating connections through his ASA, and that's causing um, the, the license limit to be reached. When the license limit is reached, the ASA will stop new connections from being created until um, there's a free licensed uh, connection slot. So the number of connections is going to have to go below 10,000 and then new connections can be built. But if there's a constant steady stream of inbound traffic and new connections from some outside user, then you know he's, he's in a bad place and he needs to figure out how to stop that host from creating those connections. So obviously some basic ways to stop those connections from being created uh, is to use an inbound access list on the outside interface that would block the particular type of traffic that that outside user is initiating. But oftentimes it's not that simple because if that outside host is querying a specific service that the ASA is supposed to allow through or the packets are spoofed, the source of the IP address of the packet is spoofed, then it's much trickier to write a, an access list that blocks that one 
illegitimate that illegitimate class of traffic while permitting traffic inbound for legitimate users. Your best option in this case is really to use the modular policy framework on the firewall to configure connection limits for certain classes of traffic. So one of your options is to set the per client max. So basically you define a, a subset of traffic uh, with a class map and then you say, okay, for um, clients initiating new connections inbound through the firewall, what's the maximum number of connections that those particular clients should have on a per-client basis? That, that's going to help uh, reduce the total number of connections through the firewall. The other thing you can do is define a traffic traffic class and then set the con max, the total con max for that entire class of traffic. So if you know that total number of connections to your server on the inside should not exceed, say, 2,000 connections, well, you can then limit it to 2,000 connections, and that frees up 8,000 connections for other um, connectivity through the firewall. And, and just to add to that, it's really simultaneous or concurrent connections. So if you set the max connections for that traffic to the server at 2,000, you can have 2,000 simultaneous connections. Once you hit that limit, then no new, con- no more new connections to that server with that protocol matching the class map would be allowed. And for same for the per client max. If you set that limit to five, then every client on the internet can initiate up to five simultaneous connections. But on the sixth, it would get denied. If they drop down and had four, then the fifth one, it would be allowed. So once you've implemented this mitigation technique by setting the maximum number of connections for a traffic class, you're gonna hopefully you're going to see the total number of connections go way down. Um, you can verify the total number of connections through the firewall with the show con and show con count command. You can also do show local host, and you can give that a range. So the local host is sort of a container object for um, different IP hosts on the inside and the outside of the firewall. And... A good uh, command that we, an argument that we in the TAC had the developers that make the firewall code add is you can say show local host and then give it a count. Uh, so you can say I only want to see the local hosts or the IP addresses that are on the inside of the or the outside of the firewall that have this many connections attached to them. So you can quickly weed out the hosts that don't have many connections and you can focus in on the ones that have a significant number of connections through the firewall. Well, I was trolling the forums again here, and I came across a question that you might like, Dave. Customer is interested in upgrading his ASA 5520 from 821 to 824. He asks, uh, we're having several 5520s running 821 today. Uh, We're not facing any issues, but a general question. Is it recommended to upgrade to 824? This is a question that we get fairly frequently from customers, and that's really, you know, boils down to the question of when should I upgrade? So they're on some release, some version today, and they want to know, you know, one, when should I upgrade? And two, what should I upgrade to? So TAC has, you know, a few general rules of thumb that go around this. And the first general rule is stay in the train that you're in. So in this case, the customer is running 821, so they're in the 82 train. So we would first advise, you know, is that train targeted to be end of life? If there's no end of life announcements for the train, then it's considered an active train, which engineering is actively fixing bugs on. Therefore, the general recommendation is to stay in that train. So then we would look and say, are there any newer maintenance releases that are available to the customer in that train? And for the 8.2 train, we're up to version 8.2.4, or the third maintenance release in the 8.2 train. So three plus the original release, which one is four. So 824 is the third maintenance release in that train. And so our general recommendation would be, you know, you're happy with the 8.2 train. You're not really having any problems. Upgrade to the latest maintenance release in your train. 
Now, the second part of that is when should I upgrade trains? So when should I go from 8.2 to 8.3 or from 8.3 to 8.4? And the answer to that question is really when the next train that you have either has a feature that you need or you want to utilize in your company or once the next major train has been out in the field for at least six months and has at least the first maintenance release in that train. So, for example, 831 has been out now for over a year, and we also have a couple maintenance releases in the 83 train. Therefore, it would be fine to upgrade from 82 to 83. But if you're happy with the 82 train, then in this particular case, there's no reason to get off it. So I hope that answers the question. I think it answers it pretty well. I mean, we do get a lot of those questions that come in that basically say, I want to move to the latest and greatest. You know, and that's a question that's not a, that always, doesn't always have the same answer. You know, it all depends on what your code trains are and where you want to go. Yeah, and I think the recommendation obviously is to when that new version of code hits Cisco.com, if you're in the support forums and you see people talking about it, go read the release notes for that version of code and understand you know what those new features are that you're picking up and any new memory limitations or other restrictions that come along with that with that new version of code. So basically, be as educated as possible before you upgrade. We don't anticipate any issues. Obviously, but you know, it's imp- if there are any issues that we know about, or there's more restrictions, are going to be in the release notes. And a very good example of that is the move from 8.2 to 8.3, for example. There's that very large syntactical difference in NAT configuration, and you want to be aware of those kind of things. All that information is in those release notes. Yeah, and you know, the move to 8.3. You know, we see a lot of discussions on the support forums about the move to 8.3 and the changes that are done when your configuration migrates and also questions just about the sort of change in style of the 8.3 NAT configuration. We've done a lot of work on the support forums and the communities and the 8.3 NAT changes are a good uh, a good example of how we can use the support forums and how, you know, as firewall administrators, um, all of you can, you know, really benefit from it. We've made videos out there talking about version 8.3 and the NAT changes. We've got, uh, Magnus wrote a great doc on showing 8.3 NAT configurations, you know, in version 8.3 and then the sort of parallel configuration, what it looks like in version 8.2 and below. Um, We've also got a lot of good discussions. Administrators have been asking questions about 8.3 uh, Nat, and we've answered those there. So it's a good resource. Go ahead and check it out if you haven't already. All right, Dave. Sorry for not paying too much attention to you for the past few minutes, but I found another question for you. Just Hit me with it. All right. This ASA user is interested in some of the differences between port forwarding for static Nat on an ASA. Now, he says specifically here, I'm an ASA 5510 that is connected to an ISP router over a slash 30 network. We don't have any more public IPs available from the ISP. But we have two servers inside our DMZ that need to be accessed from the internet. He lists a handful of protocols that he's interested in. Since we can't configure static one-to-one NAT for these two publicly accessible servers, uh, due to lack of address availability, I'm considering configuring port forwarding. My questions are, are there any issues with configuring port forwarding on the ASA? And if we did have the public IPs available, is one option better than the other? As in, which is better, port forwarding or static NAT? Okay, that's a really good question. So first, you know, saying the basis is he says, his ISP gives him a slash 30, and slash 30 is a, is a notation for um, a slash 30 net mask, which equates to a .252 um, net mask, which really gives you four addresses, but you have the network and broadcast address are two of those. So it leaves two IPs that are usable, one being assigned to the ASA, and obviously one being assigned to the ISP gateway router. So, you know, he really frames the question really well. Hey, I'm getting technical. Here's exactly what I've got. 
Now here's the problem I have is I've got two different servers on the inside that I want to host services from. So obviously he can't do a one-to-one NAT. There's just no possible way of doing that. So his, his only solution is to use port forwarding, which the ASA does perfectly fine, no problem with it. But his real question is, is there a difference between port forwarding or what we call static PAT versus static NAT? And the answer is, is really for um, limited services, there's really no difference from a practical standpoint. So when you do static PAT, for every service, you have to write a new NAT rule or static PAT rule that lets you know what service is being connected to and what service or port you're translating it to. So typically, customers don't translate. And so when I say that, if a user on the outside connects to port 80, when that gets statically patted to the server on the inside, it's going to be patted to port 80 as well. But with static PAT, you do have the capability of saying, I want external users to connect to port 8080, and we'll statically translate it to port 80. So that's only possible doing static PAT. If you had a one-to-one static NAT, you could not do that. That's not functionality. So there is an added benefit. The downside is for every port that you want to allow through, you have to have a new static statement to allow that through. Additionally, if you're overloading on the interface of the ASA, then what you need to do is, in your static statements, you need to clearly specify the interface keyword instead of the IP address that's actually assigned to the interface. The same goes for the interface ACL. Instead of using the actual IP address of the interface, use the interface keyword. And this really helps with things like DHCP, right? If the IP were to change, you know, then the traffic would still be allowed through. But if you're going to host a service, we really hope you're not using DHCP. That said, you do need to use the interface keywords in both the static statements as well as in the ACLs. So we talked about you know, those differences. The only other consideration that you need to think of, and it's a downside to using static PAT, is if you're uh, hosting a service like, say, port 443 or HTTPS, right? the ASA is listening on port 443 or HTTPS for things like WebVPN and for ASDM. So if you want users to connect to that service and you enter a static PAT statement, then that's going to actually get translated through and be passed to the internal server. The ASA will no longer see that traffic and respond to it for ASDM or WebVPN traffic. Therefore, you need to move those ports that ASDM or WebVPN listens to on the ASA to some other port so that you can still have the service and functionality available. Now, where this doesn't work is things like SSH. So if you want to have... Um, if you want to be able to statically pat an SSH traffic to an internal server, on the ASA, we can't change the listening port that the ASA listens to for SSH. It's always going to be port 22. Therefore, you'll no longer be able to access the ASA on port 22 from the outside if you also statically pat port 22 to some internal server. So that is one downside. So there's both pros and cons to using static pat versus static NAT. And the, the kinds of discussions that we're having here today are really mirroring the discussions that are going on 24-7 on the, uh, uh, within the Cisco support community. I mean, there's just constant discussion going on. If you, if so, we encourage you, if you do have a question or, you know, a tech tip or just about anything, I mean, go over to the support communities, get yourself uh, logged in and find the community you want to contribute to, and then go ahead and start up a discussion or look for an unanswered discussion and, and, and chime in with your opinion. And, you know, we, we find it very satisfying to do so. So we hope you do too. So one other 
a bit of information since we're talking so much about the support forms here today is that the show notes page for our podcast are now published in the support forms. So we used to publish them on Cisco.com and now we're actually publishing them exclusively into the support forms. We'll create a doc for you and uh, have the show notes there. So you can still go to www.cisco.com slash go slash tack security podcast to see the main page. But when you click on the link for the show notes, it'll direct you to the document within the support forms. So we encourage you to go there, look at the notes over the sh- over today's show, which will include links into all the questions that we talked about today on this episode, and as well as give you the opportunity of adding some comments to the show notes for today to let us know what you liked about the episode or any suggestions you have for a future episode. All right, well, that does it for episode number 17 of the Tax Security Podcast. Uh, just like David said, remember you can access the show notes directly from the support community, or you can go to www.cisco.com slash go slash tax security podcast and get a link to those uh, community pages from there. Thanks for listening.